This episode is sponsored by Vorboss. Check them out in the description below. In terms of the production, um, do, you, do you remember what the budget was? <sighs> you know what? If I, was to, if I was to take a shot, I'd say it was somewhere between maybe four and, and eight thousand right. pound. And so, how did you get the money? Was that was that like a was that the church or was that like a donation thing or? Uh, it's, it's a good story. Yeah. So when I was doing um, Shakespeare behind the door, uh, we did a performance and friends and family could come and watch it. And um, after we got we had a little bit of time to talk to everybody, and I was talking to some guy, um, Mark Woodruff, and he. He worked at the Sainsbury's Trust, which is a, a donate a, a trust fund uh, that that supports a lot of work in in Africa and Asia, and do some incredible work. And he said to me after, "Look, we st stay in touch. I'd love to kind of see your journey and, and where you go." It's as simple as that. Mm. You know what I mean, gave me his card. Mm. And when I was putting on the production, I knew that we needed some money, so I looked at his card and I thought, "Let me shoot this geezer an email mm. and see if he he." can give us some money so I emailed him and I said look I'm putting on a play with some young people whatever da -da 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 -da. and he said to me alright cool send me one page of on A4 paper of what it is you want to do that was it I said that's it he said yeah that's it so I typed up what I was trying to do sent it to him and then he gave us £10,000 come well, on well, okay. yeah, come on he gave us 30000 over three years so 10000 wow. a year and that was the seed funding for okay intermission was it did he say up front i'm gonna give you 30 for three years or was it like each year you'd, you'd go back to him no and he say, said up front we'll give right. you the same future trust will give you 30 a transfer of thirty thousand, wow ten thousand each year and that was you know that was just from wow. somebody i spoke yeah. to after again similar to just it. from asking yeah, yeah yeah just just from asking yeah and that's how the, the whole youth uh, uh you know that was the springboard for it taking it to the beginning in terms of getting started everyone i think the first question i'll have is okay so money how did you get the startup capital what what was that spent on so i I was always taught when I was younger to be incredibly frugal mm. and save, save, save. So ever since I was young, I'd always been saving. I never spent on anything. My parents always said, you can't buy something new, go on eBay, go and uh, go and find it for a better price. So that was always drilled into me. So mm. I, from uh, initially when I started uh, selling bread, um, I did it uh, just from a few pounds um, and then um, through savings from grandparents giving 50 pounds at Christmas um, and and money as well that I'd made through bread um, I started buying things from Poundland uh, so I used to pass it every day uh, every day going to school um, and I knew how to buy on eBay and I thought about actually should I start trying to sell something and because Poundland was buying product uh, end of line product mm. um, at the time um, there was a lot of good deals because they had to sell everything for a pound but the actual value of the, those products was uh, normally far, far greater. And for anyone listening at home, just quickly, what's an end-of-line product? So an end-of-line product is a product that um, is being sold potentially by another business when, when they go bust. So they're picking up these uh, these bargain, bargains for probably 20p to the pound, and then uh, and then pound we're selling them obviously for a pound. But the, the normal retail value of these products might have been about 15 pounds. So right. an example would be a sushi-making kit, yeah. and I was buying them for Poundland and selling them for 10 pounds on, right. on eBay. That sounds like the early days of Amazon FBA, to be honest yeah. with you, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I think the value of money has always been something that we've, we've held very closely. So um, we have completely bootstrapped the whole business um, up until the point where we got to today. And part of that as well, as, as Monty said, growing up, um, money was incredibly important. He wasn't very, or he was very frugal, sorry, with money um, growing up. And it was similar to me. 
um, where my parents at the age of 15 told me that they weren't giving me any more money for anything and I had to go and get a job. So mm. um, very early on, um, even before that, we realized the value of money and how important it was and to spend it wisely. And that sort of prompted everything going forward in terms of what we do, yeah. um, who we are and where we spend our money because we had to make profit in order to um, go to that next level. And so mm. you know, we've always been incredibly frugal. And so how much startup capital was required right at the beginning? Literally uh, pounds. Okay. So, so yeah, really, really nothing. Um, in, in terms of furniture box though, um, all of the money that I'd accumulated through trading yeah. um, from, from an early age was then invested into furniture box, into buying stock. Um, so we had age on our side. So the, the accumulating effect of starting so young and not having any outgoings as well, mm. um, when it's compounding in terms of investing in stock, reselling it, um, was fairly large. Uh, so we didn't have, well, I didn't have any over overheads to begin with. So I was fortunate to be able to, to then invest that, that money uh, into furniture box. Um, and it's, it's something that we've always wanted to maintain in terms of not taking outside investment. Yeah. Um, because we we find that when it's your own money, you really know how to look after it, where to spend it. You understand where the, the profit is coming from in the business and where you might be also leaking and you're less careless. Um, yeah, that's always been our philosophy. Yeah. So obviously one of the main points about Pouch um, is that you went on Dragon's Den. I did. And you didn't dragons. just go on, you got all five <laughs> dragons yes. on board, which is yeah. quite a big achievement. Not many people have that happen. At the time, um we were the the second company to have done that and there, there had oh, been wow. 15 okay. or 16 seasons so we wow. certainly weren't geared up for that kind of result because it yeah. hadn't happened before um we were mainly interested in um just being televised because most pitches that happen you know it's all it's all filmed over three months in manchester at bbc studios but most of the pitches are either not interesting enough yeah. um, to get televised. The only ones that do are the really good ones or the really bad ones, mm. kind of like X Factor or something yeah. like that. So our biggest priority was like, okay, how do we get televised? Well, you, usually the companies that get offers get televised. We knew that we weren't going to get laughed out of the room. It was impossible. The idea was too good. We'd already got some traction. Mm. <clears throat> the only way that it would go badly for us is if we were really greedy with our equity demands yeah. or our valuation, um, which can get a lot of founders unstuck because there is this sweet spot on that show, if you if you like monitor it as we did very carefully, that if you go in at a realistic, actually not even a realistic valuation, a very low valuation, mm -hmm. then the questions are not really about the numbers, the valuation, your margins, like anything that some founders start sweating about. And then that's when the cameras get mm. you. Because <laughs> it's a two and a half hour pitch. Oh, is it? And okay. it's condensed into about 11 minutes. Wow. So if you fuck up once in two yeah, and a half yeah, hours, use that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the moment, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the money okay. shot, right? So um, we we were keen for the the pitch not to be about our numbers because at the time, we whilst we had a lot of traction with retailers, we had very few users. I'm, I think we maybe you know, had like two or 3,000 users. It was not, we'd only launched you know, a few months before. So we knew it wasn't going to be about that. Uh, we knew the the model was good in terms of the revenue model was good, but in terms of our actual numbers, how can you say that you're worth you know two million quid if you've got like two thousand users? Get the fuck out of here, yeah. you're assholes! And then that's yeah. that that's what gets filmed. Um, if we, we we came in at a very low valuation from memory because this was filmed about five years ago now. Um, from memory, it was seventy five thousand pounds for fifteen percent of the business. 
um, we already had Rays at a much higher valuation than that before. Right. Yeah. Um, so did you go in looking for dragons or was it a publicity? No, it was totally yeah. a publicity. I, I was wondering. Right, right yeah. yeah. But it, look, 85% of the deals that go through on that show never materialize. Yeah, I've heard that. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is that the founders uh, that go on the show were lying about the numbers. Then the dragons and their teams look under the hood and they go, this is all bullshit. Um, or in what happens in most cases, uh, you then leverage the fact you're going on Dragon's Den because it gets filmed. But when it gets televised, it's like maybe six or eight months. You then leverage that as, an, as a huge marketing coup to then uh, raise at a much higher valuation. And then mm. you bend the dragons off. Mm. The BBC don't care because it's all content. The dragons don't care because they're, they're, I don't think they're even interested in the businesses that they invest in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we knew that. Look, you guys are business people. You know that uh, the valuations on that show are like far lower than the street, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because how are they going to be able to, in a two-hour uh, pitch without seeing the product, like understand the value of the technology, mm. understand the value of the team, uh, understand the value of the potential, the market, you know, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so we just thought, look, if we're not gonna, never going to take their fucking money anyway. Let's play the game. Let's yeah, play yeah, the yeah. game. Mm. Yeah. Value ourselves at like 400 grand, even though the round before we'd raised it, like I think 1.2 million or something. Okay. And then, 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 then the subsequent round was like a much higher valuation than that. And, um, and just play the game. And, then it, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why it worked for us. Because mm. if you look at the questions um, that were asked of us by the Dragons on, on that episode, it w none of them were really about the numbers they did ask us numbers but none of that was was televised but it was more about the vision the team the opportunity some questions around whether retailers would like a product like pouch because there was a um a big question mark over um uh, whether a, a tool like pouch can provide incremental value to retailers because okay. if you're providing a user a discount when they're already on the website that's problematic because you're just like kneecapping the retailer on their yeah. own on their own website going back to the, the funding side um obviously you had a slightly unique situation in that you had relationships in the um, asset management industry before going into it but what would be your advice to somebody who was actually wanting to get funding for an idea um, that didn't have those connections yeah so i mean that was it was sort of um we only did a little bit of um angel angel funding there so that wasn't I wouldn't say that was kind of the the core to the to the funding journey, but the um, I mean, really, the way that we raised m money through actually most of the journey, but definitely at the beginning, was just like relentlessly reaching out <laughs> out okay. to people. Yeah. Um. So like one of my investors, um, jokes that over three years I sent him fifteen emails, um, okay. until we finally went for breakfast, and then he invested and has been one of like the most brilliant investors for the last kind of two two three years yeah. um, was that 15 emails by the way of him not replying correct wow okay. <laughs> i love that <laughs> um and yeah so i've and uh, the advice i would give or i i guess what i did was um just just message like mm. as many people as you can as much as you can like, i would just sit on linkedin like late at night just going through anyone that had the investor in their okay. in mm. their in their name and their titles and see people um i've invested in in one other startup uh, business a small amount and so i see people do that um to me now yeah. Some, yeah. so people have searched investor um well, just by the way just on that what do you think is the line because i think a lot of people worry like well i don't want to become someone where they blacklist me because they they're like oh this is the guy that emails everyone as opposed to this guy's persistent and i think that's a really fine line how do you think what do you think about that um 
I think, I don't know if, um, I mean, there will always be people that will ignore ignore you and there's always going to be people that are blacklist, but ultimately investment's like a numbers game, right? Yeah. Even when you're pitching the VCs, you've got to pitch a hundred to, you know, get five meetings or, um, you know, and that's just the way it's just a funnel. Like, yeah. um, so yeah, I think, um, and also, uh, there's probably a line between sort of being polite and being, um, you know, so if you're politely emailing, then I don't think anyone can do too Listen, much. mate, this is my 12th yeah, email. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Get on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sort of just, just going for it. I mean, one of the, the things about three years ago, I emailed the, one of the co-founders of booking.com on LinkedIn and just sort of did like a cold LinkedIn message and was like, oh, you know, I'm just such a huge fan of booking.com. We're trying to do something similar in the, in the venue space and would absolutely love to, um, you know, to, to meet you for coffee or, you know, pick your brains or whatever. And, uh, he replied back to me and he said, uh, well, since I'm based in Amsterdam, if you're ever here, then, uh, feel free to, to drop in for coffee. So I just booked a flight the next day. And yep. said, yeah, I was going to say, I, I hope was, she yeah, says she booked a flight. Yeah, I know. I didn't want to test it. <laughs> That's no, so great. Bad. Yeah. And he, he I'm said, here. I'm free yeah. for coffee. I said, oh, I'm free on Tuesday. I think this was uh, the sort of Friday or something. He said, yeah, it's Tuesday at two is good. And I just got on a flight like five in the morning, got oh, wow. to Amsterdam, okay. went Amazing. for coffee and came back. <laughs> and came back. Yeah. Um, and it was a brilliant few hours. So he didn't become an investor, but um, but I got to learn it's a valuable huge coffee. amount. Of sure. Sure. Okay. So with Charged Up, so obviously going back to the beginning, you're at Lords. Your phone dies. You buy yep. this power bank. You see the Boris bike. You're on a Boris bike. You have that kind of the big brainwave. Yep. What's the next step? Do you call someone? Do you run it by someone? Do you you know? Do you call a manufacturer? I mean, what's the very first thing that you did when you got home? Yeah. So this is this is kind of a few years before graduating. I was you know had this kind of initial idea. So first idea was very basic. It was why don't we make vending machines that vend out power banks that are fully charged with the cables, all this kind of stuff. So you know, start looking on like Alibaba and stuff. Do these, do, can you make a power, uh, like, is there such thing yeah. as a as a vending machine for power banks? Anyway, nothing really exists. So we're looking on the market, like what, what exists in the market, doing a bit of research, et cetera. This is all while, you know, doing engineering at uni. Um, and, and you know, the, the only thing that existed on the market was these charging lockers. And if you remember way back in the day, you'd go into like a Westfield or somewhere and you'd just lock your phone away. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of all that exists. And I was like, surely like there has to be a better way. Anyway, so we start trying to build this vending machine thing, like physically with 3D printers, wow. motors, all this kind of stuff um, in our in our university lab, which was which was quite a lot of fun. And who's um, we, by the way? So just uh, me and a few friends from uni, basically. Okay. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we start trying to do that. Obviously, like that's never going to be the end business. But I think there's there's this kind of beautiful combination of naivety and like, you know, optimism that comes together when yeah. you're like super young and you're first getting into something. Um, that meant that, you know, I kind of thought that that could be the way to get to a business. Um, but anyway, so we, we, we start building this thing and we start like pitching it to people. One of which was, uh, our, our kind of business professor or whatever you want to call him at the university. Um, and he said, basically great idea here, guys. Um, you know, I, I love the enthusiasm, et cetera. Um, but basically if you, if you can prove to me that people will pay for this thing, I will give you two and a half grand, sorry. Well, I will give you two and a half grand equity free for, for absolutely nothing to go out and prove if people will pay for this. Um, and then I'll give you another two and a half grand to kind of take it to the next step. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that like very, very early on, someone being like, you need to go out and like prove that this is something that people will pay for. 
I think was like one of the most invaluable lessons mm-hmm. um, that we were we were taught like super early days. And this this dude, um, uh, Joe Pierce, he's you know I'm still in touch with him now. He's a great guy. Uh, that that was like a really really significant moment. He sat us down and made us think like how do you go from absolutely nothing to something that people will be willing to pay for with two and a half grand. Like mm. most people, most businesses, you can't do that. Yeah, that's peanuts. That's I know. It's not, peanuts it's, it really is nothing. So obviously there's no way we can build an app with that. We can't can't find a manufacturing partner and all this kind of stuff. So we have to go like super, super basic, like boil down the idea to the most minimum viable product yeah. possible. And for us, that was to buy some power banks off eBay or Amazon or whatever, um, put numbers on all of them, and then make it like a little, you know, tracking sheet on Google Sheets or whatever yeah. and go to a festival. We managed to hustle our way into a festival for free. Um, and we were we had a stand at this festival. And Can we I ask rented, what festival it was? It was the most rogue festival. You, like it wasn't a cool festival. <laughs> okay. It was like the agricultural show in Cornwall. Okay. There's a reason you got in there for free, basically. Yeah. What you're saying. I think, I think yeah, Kanye was headlining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on his JCB tractor or whatever. Like it, was, it was seriously rogue. Um, but anyway, you know, there's there's all these thousands of people. So we were sat there in the pouring rain. There's some great photos of us there. Um, with our little power banks and we had a little iZettle card machine to take their money. Um, and yeah, we we rented out these things and I think we were charging £10 to, 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 to borrow it. And then if you returned it, you paid a little, you got a bit of a refund kind of thing. Um, super, super like basic setup, but we made two grand over that weekend. Okay, wow. And obviously it's not scalable to have three people sat there at a stand all the time doing this, but it proved the concept that people want to pay to charge their mm. phone and this idea that you you know if you if you pay then you you borrow the battery and then you return it that that kind of came true even though we were the machine that was kind of renting and returning the batteries. Yeah. So obviously you mentioned Kickstarter, which I think is quite a unique way of going about it. We've never had a founder before that's gone through no. Kickstarter. Oh really? Yeah. So I find that really cool. So what what take me through that? What made you want to go go via Kickstarter? Um, so I did a Kickstarter campaign actually too before this business, but for another for for my previous job, and they all went really successfully. Um, so I already have experience with um, Kickstarter crowdfunding. Uh, around that time, this project was not set it up to be a. I didn't intend to be a full time job. Mm. I was just trying to validate the idea to see if this could be my side project. And Kickstarter tend to be uh, the best way to test if your idea has a can gain some momentum, yeah. can be well perceived and well received by a wider audience. And Kickstarter is the largest product base crowdfunding platform in the world. They have over millions like users across the whole world. Uh, there's no other cheaper way than putting your idea out there to let other people judge it. Mm. And what was the response like when you first uh, launched Kickstarter campaign? We become the most backed power project in the UK after oh, wow. 30 days. Wow. And it broke the record in the UK. So that's product market fit sorted. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's covered. Yeah. Men, okay. Men's balls were crying yeah, out exactly. across the nation. Yeah, exactly. That's great. And, and how did you, is it a case of like you just put it on Kickstarter and then it just does its thing? Or did you have to promote the Kickstarter? Yeah, we. it took me probably 10 months to prepping uh, for that campaign. That includes a lot of things from marketing to early users, like 
like beta testing or mm. alpha testing, uh, be very precisely. So we, in that process, I was doing concept development and sampling and also sorting out of like manufacturer supply chain to try to get that minimum order done. And what I initially set up the goal is, uh, I think it's 20K or maybe 15,000 pound so that I can get, I can create the first uh, minimum order quantity with right. the manufacturer. And it ended up, we got in total probably almost over 150,000 uh, pound of pre-orders. Wow. Uh, from 63 countries across the world. 63? Yeah. And you haven't made a single pair of underwear at this point? No. That's insane. Not that, I made the samples, yeah. but never commercialized. Sure. Um, that's another thing is that I'm in that process, I probably made over 60 samples. That's a lot of samples. Mm. I'm so obsessed into mm. product because I really, really believe if you want to create a really good brand, you not only, the first thing you have to crack the code is you need to have amazing product that yeah. outperform other companies competitors sure no definitely no definitely so if somebody was listening to this and they have an idea for a business and they're thinking of going through kickstarter as a as a way to get it going what yeah. would be your advice to somebody well specifically for kickstarter well first they have to be a product-based business it can be uh, underwear can be a sneaker can be a cooler uh, yeah. and can be a card actually has to be physical product and second my i think the secret sauce for us to get successful is creating that mailing list, generating a really growing, pumping up people's ex excitement mm. in advance about the product and then turning these people into your brand advocate. Because at that time we did every single friends or people on the mailing list. All I want them to do is, can you tell two of your friends? Yeah. Mm, yeah. And think about the compound impact yeah yeah sure yeah. yeah it kind of explodes from that i think a lot of people would be curious to know about the pitching process and how that works and how you best convince people to give you i mean it's a lot of money we're talking about yeah uh scary amount it's um the thing i hate most about being a founder uh because you are especially in the very early stages you're putting yourself out there and basically asking people to believe in you mm. um and you get a lot of no's uh, and even though both of our rounds have actually been been very easy in inverted commas and straightforward, um, you still get no's, and and that is a quite emotionally challenging mm -hmm. uh, point because at that point people are saying no, I don't believe that you can do this personally, mm -hmm. um, and and really then it's about um, you know you need you need a few there are a few prerequisites I guess that are that are um, necessary not necessarily sufficient but necessary for raising funding so um, a market. Uh, you need to be in a market that works for venture capital. Um, and so that basically needs to be a big market uh, where there's money to be made. You need a team, um, or at least there's the signs that you can build a strong team. Um, and specifically something within that team that shows that you have an edge over everyone else. Um, what is special about you? Um, and then some evidence that um, that you can execute. At early stages, that's uh, obviously much a, a much lower bar than at later stages. Those are the sort of key conditions, I think, that mm. are important, um, that are necessary. And then you have to go out and raise a process um, sure. and run a yeah. process. And you talk to uh, yeah, 100 firms, whittle okay. them down like a funnel and, and go yeah. from there. And what were the main reservations from the VCs that you spoke to? Um, a couple of things. W one was, uh, what do you know about logistics? Okay. Um, which uh, is true and fair um, and really comes back to that point that I, that I talked about originally, that I think coming in with a fresh uh, view is, is useful. Um, and we see that over and over again now. We obviously hire tech people, we hire logistics people, and um, often 
is a big struggle to get logistics people to say, you know, what else could you do or could you do things in a different way? Um, and, and the second is there are many VCs and, and firms out there that will only invest in software companies. We are an operationally heavy company. We go and do deliveries. We have vans. We have drivers. Um, there is a huge market here, and we believe that is how we take that market. But um, if you want to invest in software with 95% plus margins, then then you're not going to invest in something like mm. Athlete. What's it like having having that much money invested in your idea? Because I feel like that's quite a lot of pressure. I mean, we're, I mean, with our studio business, for example, we're self-funded. Mm. Um, but I mean, I can imagine that when you, when you have other people's money, um, especially when it's, you know, seven figures, th- th- I mean, I don't know, I feel like that, that might keep me up a little bit at night with yeah. the pressure of like, I got to make this work. What's that like? Yeah, like uh, terrifying broadly, I think would be the way I describe it. Um, I go backwards and forwards on it. I go... Um, at one extreme, terrifying. What are we doing? Like we've raised all this money. We, um, it's just a, you know, a crazy amount of money, and it's still a relatively small amount of money in the VC world, but a crazy amount of money um, for us. And then on the other side is, um, you know, the v- VCs invest money. This is their job. They know what they're doing. This is a tiny amount of the, the VC capital that's out there. Um, no pressure. Mm. And it's sort of broadly try and end up somewhere in the middle of that, um, yeah. which I think is probably the healthy healthy place. But um, yeah, it definitely is. And actually now that pressure grows over time, not just because of the money you raise, but now we have a business that employs 100 people yeah. um, and, and a team and, and merchants and customers. You know, mm. right in those early days, I thought, okay, I'll give this a go for a month or two. Um, see if there are legs and see if this works and if it doesn't then the worst thing that happens is mm. is you know they have to go back to dpd or whoever they're using but now we have people who switched everything to us you know okay. small businesses that yeah. use us for their whole operations from a logistical wow. delivery point of view for anyone that hasn't seen the dragon's den you did get all five offers yeah. and you ended up accepting a split between peter jones and, and Stephen that was nuts, right? that's pretty insane <laughs> pretty yeah. crazy yeah, it was pretty cool. even today you guys still find that crazy do you not I want to do it again. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, yeah. touching on the dra- touching on the Dragon's Den process, because um, we've had guests before that have been on Dragon's Den, and and actually one of our other, uh, older guests also got five offers, and he was saying how the pitch process is actually like two and a half hours, and it's like a long game. Yeah. It's funny because we saw so many comments afterwards that were like, seriously, they got five offers after 14 minutes of pitching. That's it. (laughs) And people don't see that we were in there for an hour and a half Mm. and they're grilling you. I mean, there is no break. Poor Teddy was so ill at the time. <laughs> and you hit that very well, by the way. Really? I would never have I had Glenn. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't I, clock. I would yeah, nearly yeah, pulled out the morning off. Oh, really? Yeah. He was so sick and he kept on taking water breaks. But that besides that, that was yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, we we were it was ruthless. What sort of questions were they asking you? Off air. Oh, okay. The kind that? of questions yeah. that you didn't see if yeah. you'd watched our yeah. episode. Um, there were a few questions around like exit strategy. Okay. Mm-hmm. The the one included there were a few more questions into the financials. I think, again, to Marissa's point about people thinking that we got five offers after 14 minutes was, and then, you know, there were some comments like, we didn't even ask them about the financials. Marissa and I both have sort of finance, private equity backgrounds. So for us, the financial piece, we went in there and we knew our numbers. That was one thing that we mm-hmm. were going to go in and do was smash our numbers and then defend the brand. Um, yeah, yeah. I, have, I have heard that. If you're going to go on Dragons, then know your numbers. I feel like that's the area that most people fall down on. Mm. Yeah. The numbers and they stutter on it. Or they but, go in with like a ludicrous valuation. Or they go with a ludicrous yeah. valuation. Yeah. Just, just now. How do you know you're ready? Um, and how do you pick the number? I'll, I'll I suppose, yeah, it. kind of everything surrounding we, yeah. that number. Yeah, okay. So finding actually the investors, finding the valuation, actually going out right, pitching, okay, okay. putting mm. pitch decks together. Everything around the investment process, I think, would be really interesting Ooh, to get. So, okay. So, yeah, so I mean, step one, generally you raise money because you need money. Um, so we were in a position where we weren't yet profitable. 
like making the business profitable. We were at the early enough stage that making the business profitable was really unattractive. Whereas now it'd be like, okay, we could make the business profitable, but like we'd have to hold back a few hires or something like that, right? We're at that point- and, Yeah, at the, kind of try and run a break even more so. Whereas yeah. then we were very much in the sort of venture playbook of like, you raise, you burn, you grow, you raise, yeah, you, yeah, burn, yeah, you yeah, grow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Like, so part of it was like, okay, we are coming to the, like we have a finite runway as it stands. And we have X amount of time before we either need to really chase, change course or bring more money in. Um, and then we kind of look at, okay, we can see what levers are working. We can see what kind of headroom we have. Uh, we can see what the blockers in the business are just from operating it. In our case, it's like, okay, we think we need to improve the tech of the product. That means a reasonable rate we think we can grow the tech team without it being too disruptive would be three more developers or something. And you just pop it, you know, literally make a financial model and you work out, this is roughly the amount I need. And honestly, like the whole process of like how you approach venture invest, uh, well, approach will come to, but the, the finance of it is, it's, you know, some people say more art than science. It's not even art and science. It's just heuristics. It's like, um, what is the amount of money that you reasonably need to give you 18 months to two years of runway? Some people say to hit certain milestones, really it's 18 months to two years yeah. of runway or into profitability. Um, and, you know, obviously you should achieve some, some good stuff in that 18 to 24 months mm. or be profitable. Mm, you know, yeah. those are your two choices. Um, so that's one part. Uh, then the other part is depending on your stage as a business um, and depending on how large the market is that you're attacking. Um, this, you know, let's say that, you know, in our case, you know, we're, we're, we're not we're not idiots like. You know, we're not trying to, we're not- <laughs> That's the impression we like to give. Turn us off the break. Are they idiots? We're not like, we're not gonna, we're, you know, we're not gonna make a case unless it's around product expansion, new services, blah, blah, blah. We're not gonna make a case to investors like, oh, we're gonna turn over a billion doing this uh, thing that we're doing now, right? Um, so you need to kind of, t and we are also a business and it's more European than American thing that has real turnover. So then those two things kind of say like, okay, you can have a certain acceptable range multiple of your current revenue, right? Mm -hmm. um, and What is that range out of interest? Uh, I would say in the current market, it depends. It does depend it, on the market. It hugely yeah. depends, right? Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, like it, it also depends how how big and how how big the market is that you're attacking and how quickly you're growing. Because if you're, if you're attacking a ridiculously huge market um, and you're growing ridiculously quickly, you have really strong signs of product market fit, you're like a relatively unique business who's well positioned, you know, the multiple could be irrelevant. Like you could be turning over 500K and raise 100 million, right? Um, but if you're turning, you know, if you're doing real traction um, and you don't have a very clear argument as to how you're gonna turn over 10 billion, you know, you're, you're more saying like, okay, I'm gonna turn over 100 to 200 million, then, then you do have, have kind of more bounds that are like multiples of your revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then also basically the other thing is, uh, the valuation basically is, well, you, if you're doing, I'd say the absolute minimum 5%, it's like you, you don't do a round for less than 5%. Um, and at the absolute max, 20, maybe 25%. Um, and so between those three or four things, you kind of numbers pop out, right? You sort of do work it backwards from how much you're prepared to give away yeah. and how much you need, right? Yeah. Is what you're yeah. saying. So, yeah. so we would look at the financial model. It would say like, okay, we need about you know, oh, and the other the other factor is how much interest is there? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'd look at the model and be like, okay, we can make one to three million work. Um, we're willing to give away 15%-ish, something like that, uh, 15 to 20 maybe. Um, and oh, I said five, five is actually really low. It's more like 10 to 20 is the normal barriers. Um, 
and you know this is roughly how much we're turning over so we think we could you know justify a, a multiple a valuation that's a multiple of x so let's say pre-market collapse you know if you're a real business doing real turnover 10 to 20x or even even less maybe like 8 to 15x pretty reasonable current circumstances maybe more like 5 to 12 and that would just be off the top line Turnover. Yeah, turnover. Uh, okay. Depends a little bit what again on depends your business. On your business. Luckily, bit, I mean, right? our top yeah. line sort of correlates pretty much like one to two with our like net revenue. Okay. Uh, it, what I mean by that is like net revenue, gross profit. I'm a bit confused. Uh, don't, let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business 101. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, depends on your, your accounting sort of principles. But more, more the point was just like because we take fairly high margin, as we were discussing earlier in the episode, yeah. you know, well, our, our gross revenue top line is. is yeah pretty well connected okay. to what yep. you're actually doing as a business it's, whereas if you were a marketplace that got like a five percent margin and you were trying to multiply your top line then it'd be nonsense you know yeah. airbnb obviously shouldn't do the transaction value the other thing is that we, we 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 agree with our host to pay them a fixed amount right so when we do product changes that increase the amount that we charge customers we actually retain more of it so it's a little different our reporting isn't quite like other marketplaces it is more relevant to, to report the top line transaction value mm -hmm. um but but yeah basically those are some multiple i'm not really an expert in that stuff that's kind of uh, i think it's something like that at the moment i don't yeah. know can you talk to going into pitches sort of what the experience has been for you going into pitches and what kind of advice you give to people when it comes to raising funding i think it's quite a daunting process for a lot of people yeah, and I will be completely honest, I didn't do much of the pitching. Um, I'm an uneducated female, uh, young female from Southeast London, and I did not suit those investor conversations, really. So my co-founder did it. He's a privately educated male accountant who knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, so I'd come in for the kind of second meetings or third meetings. Do you have any investors. regrets about not going into those? Um, not really, because I was focused on the business. I was focused on the operations, the, the team, uh, the customer service, the product that we were building. And fundraising is a full-time job. And that was basically his job, was fundraising and having all those conversations. And I would not have wanted to do that job at the time. I really enjoyed my job. Mm. And I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't regret it. Have you played all. more part of the funding since? I have. I think, I think it's really difficult for like a solo founder to fundraise because for us, it was clear. He does the fundraising. I'm working on the business and they are both two very, very big jobs. Um, if you've got one person trying to do it all, mm. I feel so sorry for them because it must just be so incredibly difficult to do that. And I think the process itself of raising capital can get easier. There's got to be a better way for businesses to do it on like both ends of the spectrum, investment firms and startups. There's got to be a better way. Um, and there's there's a few so there's a platform that tries to match VCs and startups. Maybe that's the future. Um, there's obviously like Cedars and Crowdcube where you can actually go yeah. out to the crowd. Mm. Um, there's a few things popping up in that space. Um, mm. I'm not totally sure that we've completely cracked it yet. Yeah, sure. Because I can see you're now on the other side of it. You're investing in business yourself. 
yes. Well, I'm doing a stint at a, a consumer VC slash growth firm. Um, so they invest in um, consumer focused businesses, um, fantastic brands mm. uh, that you will have known about. Um, and yeah, so I'm kind of on the other side of the table mm. because for me, it was such a daunting such a daunting prospect and i did feel in some conversations that i was not welcome and i did not feel at home or at ease a bit like this joking um, that's three jokes people are gonna, th- people are gonna think you're serious <laughs> um yeah and and so i was i i guess i think the best way to learn is by seeing it from someone else's perspective and now I look at a lot of pitch decks and speak to a lot of founders mm. and I'm yeah just kind of getting exposure to that side of things when you say you didn't feel welcome in a lot of situations what what do you mean by that exactly can you can you elaborate a little bit I don't think I fitted the idea of what a founder should be hmm what did they think the idea of a founder should be? Uh, well, I risk getting a bit sexist here, but I, I think I think they expected me to be male. And uh, there is actually, there there is research that shows that the conversations that an investor will ask a man is very different to the, com- the, the questions that they'll ask a woman. So they'll ask a, they'll ask a male about vision growth the future they will ask a female about the problems and so naturally interesting the female is talking about all the problems and the male is talking about where it's gonna go the space yeah elon musk type thing um uh, and there's there's research that shows that and i think coming across pieces of research like that makes me feel a little bit more like it it wasn't all just in my head Mm. that it is actually a thing i think we have a lot of this is not just investors versus founders this is as a society we have a lot of biases that we maybe will come over uh, overcome at some point but i don't think we will in my lifetime in terms of the pitch were you going into these rooms with these investors when you secured meetings were you pitching by yourself or or with your other co-founders only by myself i think we found between three of us i actually quite enjoy it and it also meant that the other guy could just focus on building the product and building the company. And actually, to this date, that's how we do, we do fundraising. They don't do any of the fundraising. I do it. They focus on building the business. The problem is we can't just stop running the business when I'm fundraising. So mm. we keep the business going. And it sort of sorts the personality. You talk to Thies and Harry, like, I never want to do fundraising ever. <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing it. Um, they might come and join for the final sort of investment committee. But at that point, it's more of a, hey, they're real people, you can meet them, but it's less of them pitching. The obvious uh, worry I would think about in that is that what if you get asked something that's too technical or too financial that isn't your area of expertise and something, how do you answer that if they're not there? How would you tackle that? Uh, To be honest, I know most of it myself to the level of a VC asking it. Like they're not, and actually I would say that because I was pretty heavily involved in building everything from scratch. Mm. Like I know quite a little all the way down to the ISO codes we get from MasterCard. I'm pretty familiar with what we get. And trust me, no VCs understand what happens on the ISO codes in <laughs> the network. So I feel like I have enough deep knowledge across credit underwriting, you know, financial crime, you know, 
how financial services, or sorry, how credit card unit economics work, as well as how our credit card works as well. To be able to answer, I haven't, at least I've never had an issue where I couldn't answer a question. Do you have any advice on how to successfully pitch those kinds of rooms? I found the biggest thing for me was actually just not using a pitch deck. Interesting. And part of that for me was, well, actually, I'll go back to that. I think the, the pitch to the investment committee is actually not the most important pitch. The pitch is the initial coffee chat you have, the walking meeting you have. Those, are, for me, are the most important meetings because ultimately when you get to investment committee, you've already got a general partner championing the deal. And so I'm not saying the investment committee doesn't matter, but I would say that getting that investment committee is the hard part. Actually, most entrepreneurs, if you ask them or most founders and you speak to them, Getting to IC is the hard part, like getting to that stage. It's every single call before that, they can't even get past those stages. And I think a lot of it for me was going, actually, how do I pitch really well? It's a conversation. It's not me pitching at them. And I think the best pitches I've had is like, let's just go for a walk. Let me just, let me tell you about what we're building. Let's just have a chat. Let's have a conversation and tell you about what we're building. And hopefully you get excited by it. And if you don't, then maybe it's not a good fit for you, you and I. And feeling more comfortable saying, this isn't a good fit for you as well. Because if you're not excited by it, I don't really want to work with you either. Mm, yeah, and yeah, so you're kind of getting more comfortable with just going for a walk. And I always say that, you know, if you think about it, if you meet an investor at a coffee shop, it's pretty weird if you just unleash a pitch deck and start pitching at them at a coffee shop. You kind of want to just have a conversation. Sure. And for me, a great pitch is a conversation and a dialogue. Mm. And your first meeting is to get the next meeting. It's not to try and close a deal on the spot. It's mm. to get them excited enough about what you're building, your ambition, the product you're building, the team you have, um, the mission you have to, yeah. to get them excited by it. And I think that's much better done through a conversation than a pitch. So would yeah. you suggest when uh, founders that are looking to potentially raise funding and reach out to VCs, when they send that initial cold email or maybe even cold LinkedIn message, whatever it might be, would you recommend them sort of suggesting, I'd love to take you for coffee and have a chat with you? Yeah, I'd, I'd backtrack. I would generally say warm intros are always 10 times better than cold emails. I never have successfully had a meeting through a cold email. Interesting. But I would say, speaking a bit from privilege, because we were very fortunate to have very great tier one seed investors. So they, they did all the introductions for me to any other investors. And most of the conversations I've had are generally funds reaching out to us. But I would say the chicken egg problem is, well, how do you get Started. That was what I was about yeah. to ask. But, yeah. you know, and I remember the the first thing I thought about was like three years ago was like, okay, you need to get one of intros. I'm like, how? I don't have a network of investors to speak to. I just exhausted my existing network of friends and said, do you know anyone? So even for me, it was just, I had an MBA classmate and said, hey, you worked in this VC fund. Can we chat? And the, the friend, your friends are more likely to just help you out as well. Now, none of them ever invested in the end and none of those funds ever worked out but at least it just got me into the front door to start having these conversations as well. Mm. But I'd always say warm intros are so much better. As maybe, you know, people can say that cold intros, you know, cold emails do work. They probably do, but I think your hit rate's going to be much well, worse. Yeah. And these investors, I mean, they get like 10, 50, 100 pitches a day. How do you filter through the noise? And even me on the recruitment side, I get a lot of people just called me about jobs at Yonder and, there's just too many now for me to read every single one and like really go through it. And so you end up using like heuristics, which is like, if it's someone I trust, refer someone to me. Okay, like, you know, I'll definitely want to have a conversation sure. with them. I don't know if it doesn't feel fair. And I recognize that I think a lot of the diversity issues in VC is because of this problem. 
but I also, you know, if, if you're a founder, I think you just have to recognize that this is currently how the game works. And so getting into it is much more powerful mm. and just exhaust every part of your network. I mean, literally, it got to a point where I think I, I emailed my wife's tutor <laughs> who knew someone <laughs> okay. to like give me an intro. And that was still better than just cold emailing. Yeah, uh, sure. And it was, it was hard to do it that way, but I think it's still better than just trying to do it cold. Um, what advice could you give to someone who's going through a funding round or looking to go through a funding round in terms of actually valuing their company and trying to decide how much A to give away and B, you know, how much they should be raising? I think valuing the company, just go back to fundamentally the market decides at early stage, I'm not talking about growth stage, growth stage is a bit different, but early stage, so pre-seed, seed, the market decides your valuation. Um, so I would generally say, don't go in with a, this is the valuation, take it or leave it. Um, I would actually say work backwards though from how much capital you need and how much capital you need is what milestone do you need to hit? So if you kind of think about it, you know, pre-seed to seed is like to go and take, you know, an idea to like a product that you take to market, you know, C to Series A is you've proven product market fit, really early signals of product market fit. Series A to Series B is now you've got a proven growth engine, just add capital and get more revenue and profit. All right, so think about those sort of funding rounds as proving out your thesis and each funding round should unlock, you know, should sort of at each funding round, you should have had a new proof point that you've figured out. And so how much capital do you need to hit that proof point? So for us, it's like the proof point is have a credit card live in the market with customers using it. So our pre-seed needed to be large enough to get us there. Now, there was like sort of theoretical maximums, you know, sure, you could get 10 million, but like, no, no, what's the minimum amount of money you need to get that proof point of customers loving your product or just having early signal? We didn't need to have, we didn't need to have proven product market fit. We just need to have early signal that people would really like our product. And then I think in terms of dilution, quite honestly, a bit of it is market dynamics right now. You know, pre-seed, seed, 10, 15, 20, maybe up to 25 max is sort of the standard market terms. Uh, and then really it's just down to negotiation. And if you think about it, if you start with round size, you then figure out, you know, a dilution you're comfortable with that determines your valuation anyway. So mm. uh, especially the early stage, I think at late stage it's very different. And I think for most people here, if you're like a series C, D company, it's a very different True. situation. And also now revenue multiples, public market multiples start to matter a lot more. And I think that's quite a different game though.